We're continuing our study this morning in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. And um, I will just tell you, this is not an easy passage to preach. Um, It won't be an easy passage to hear if you truly listen with an open heart. It will speak to every single one of us in very sobering ways. And, um, and I encourage us to approach this with an open heart, ready to hear what the Spirit has to say to each of us. Because when we talk about the topics that are within this passage, they become very sobering and very, um, they will clear your head, they will clear your heart if you truly enter into what God is teaching us through these passages. So, let's pray as we get ready to open his word. Let me just encourage you as you sit there to invite the Spirit to speak to you. Open your heart, open your mind to receive what he has to say to you. Father, thank you for giving us your word. For the reminder that we live in a world of tribulation. We live in a world of distress. That we will be persecuted because of your name that there are many people around the world, even this moment, who are suffering because of the name of Jesus. Connect our hearts with the hearts of our brothers and sisters who face tribulation because they claim the name of Jesus. We ask for the unhindered work of your spirit as we look at your word. Purify us. Make us more like Jesus. As we look fully and completely into the face of Christ. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I can still remember the day, a Sunday morning like any other Sunday morning, as though it was just yesterday. And my mind goes back to this moment so many times over the years. Like any other Sunday morning, my wife and I walked from our apartment when we were living in Kunming, less than a kilometer away, 
to the handicapped school where our church met. Along with a couple of other friends, I had planted a church some months, nearly a year earlier, and we were meeting in one of the classrooms at our mission headquarters there in the city where we lived. It was a classroom where our village doctor training program took place each week. And as we walked down this dirty, narrow street, which we walked down multiple times every day, and we entered the gates to the handicapped school, we walked across the basketball court and into the next courtyard where our classroom was located. And I approached the door. There was a sign posted on the door in English and in Chinese. It was posted there by the police that this church has been closed. By order of the police, we were no longer allowed to meet. And there was nothing to do but to tell a hundred people to go home and wait for further notice. Several months later, we were finally given permission to meet again in a location where we would be carefully monitored, where there was often a policeman standing in the back of the room making sure that we complied with the law. There was a large sign in the back of the room informing me as the pastor of the rules and regulations that would allow us to meet as a church. And the reality is for years, every Sunday morning, I would wake with this dread that we would be closed again as a church. And the reality is it happened several times. We were disbanded as a congregation. We were told we could not meet. For whatever reason, we didn't need a reason. It happened several times. By the way, that church just celebrated its 20th anniversary just a couple months ago. I had the privilege of being there on the 19th anniversary last year. It is still thriving by God's grace, though the police close it every once in a while. For three years, I mentored a man who had planted and pastored five churches in our city. He also was a psychiatrist. And Dr. Leong and I met each week in a place that was hidden and safe. At our very first meeting, he told me three things. First, that I was never to come to his home. I could not know where he lived and his neighbors must never ever see us together. And of course, I was never allowed to visit his church. Second, if he didn't show up for a meeting, I was not to contact him. 
I was not to try and find him. I was not to try and see where he was. I knew where he worked, but I was not to try and contact him. And third, he would inform me when it was safe for us to meet. And if he ever did not show up, I wasn't to try and find him, he would let me know when it was safe. We can meet. And during the years that we met together, there was one period of three months when I would sit in our meeting place at the appointed time and he didn't show up. Week after week, I would sit there and wait. He wouldn't come, and I would just go back home. And I would often wonder, where is he? What's going on? Is he okay? I didn't know. I had no idea. Finally, one night, there was a knock at our door. I opened the door, and Leon was standing right there. And he said to me, the danger is past. We can start meeting. One day, a young woman who worked for Sue as our house help came to work one day and we could tell that she was distressed. And we asked her, Shall be what's wrong? One of my best friends has just been killed by her parents. She had come to faith some months earlier, and she finally told her parents, who were devout Buddhists, she told them of her faith in Jesus, and her parents said to her, her faith in Christ would bring such shame upon them as a family that they could not bear the shame. So they killed her. For a decade, this was the world I lived in every day. These were the normal kinds of stories that Sue and I would hear day in and day out. This is where I lived. These were the people I lived among. And I met many and I worked with many men and women who experienced imprisonment, abuse, arrest. They were cut off from family. They were cut off from their friends. They were discriminated against. They faced the kinds of horrors that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. Some of these stories we know about, but most we will never, ever hear. By some estimates, there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in all of the previous centuries combined. 
The actual numbers are difficult to verify. But brothers and sisters, I believe we have much to learn about faith from those who have counted the cost about what it means to take up the cross, to die to yourself, and to live fully for Jesus. We can never forget that for many people around the world, even today, even this very minute, life gets much more difficult when they follow Jesus. They make that decision. And life does not get easier, it gets harder. Our experience as a church in a free and open society, I believe, has clouded our understanding about what the Bible teaches about suffering and persecution. Too often we see it as something that is unusual, something that is strange, something to avoid. And too often we look to our government and not our God to protect our right to freedom of religion. But Scripture also reminds us that the final word is not a word of despair. It is a word of hope. And we will see that in our passage today as we look at this. Mark chapter 13. We're picking up where we left off last week, beginning at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved." But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels." And gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
Stuart began looking at this passage last week, and we will conclude it next week. We often call this the Olivet Discourse. It is, it is a message given by Jesus as he is as sitting in, on the Mount of Olives. We see in verse 3, opposite the temple. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately about what he had just said. It would have been the, the perfect vantage point from which to look across the Kidron Valley and, and across over to the Temple Mount to the most revered place in all of Israel. The, the Temple Mount stood prominently on that place and the rest of the city spreads out below, below it in, across these hills. But Jesus says here in verse 2 that not one stone will be left upon another. It will all be, be thrown down. And the point that Jesus has been making all through these verses, in fact, these, these chapters, is that the dwelling place of God is not in a building. The dwelling place of God is, is not in the temple. The dwelling place of God is in the hearts of his people. The temple has served its purpose as a reminder of the God who draws near, the, the, the God who dwells among his people. It is a, a physical reminder that God has come close to his people. But when the Spirit of God comes, we become the temples of the living God. He dwells in us, not in a house, not in a building, but in the hearts of his people. We become the spiritual house where the Spirit of God takes up residence. And as we look at this portion of the discourse, we, we need to be reminded of two things. My, my message really has two points as it breaks very obviously here in this, this part of the passage. The first, Jesus talks about the reality of persecution. The reality of of persecution. That is the emphasis of verses 14 through 23. Jesus uses a phrase here that comes from the, the book of Daniel. He, he uses it this once, but in the, in the book of Daniel, it, it's used a number of times. We see it as we look back. Daniel chapter 9. If you have your Bible, turn back and look at these, these passages. He also uses it in chapter 8. But chapter 9, verse 27, he is talking about this person, this, 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 this false Christ, this false prophet, this person, and all of the, 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 the havoc that this person is, is wreaking across the place. And he says... Uh, chapter 9, verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the weeks he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Look at chapter 11, turn over just a couple pages, chapter 11, verse 31. 
he uses the same phrase again. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Again, the next chapter, chapter 12 This is how the book of Daniel ends. And from that time, the regular burnt, that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days and so on. Blessed is he who waits and arrives, but go your way till the end. The end, the rest shall stand. It's allotted place till the end of time. The abomination that brings desolation through the book of Daniel. It it appears a few times, chapter 8, 9, 11, and 12. And it, it refers to an event that is not only detestable and rejected by God, it is such an event that brings horror and destruction among God's people. It isn't entirely clear what the event is that is that is being referred to here since historians have actually captured a number of events that could qualify for for such a description but whatever this whatever this abomination was mark verse 14 intends that his audience understands this as a fulfillment of of Daniel's prophecy. That they see whatever this is, and and they see that this is a fulfillment of what Daniel has already predicted would happen. And it is another sign of the beginning of the the birth pains, which we saw in in verse 8, the beginning of the birth pains of of all these things that that are going to happen, the the birth pains of of the end times. And we also see that there is a sense of suddenness as this happens, as the people flee, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter the house to take anything out. Don't go back and get your cloak. And this, this, word of, this word of comfort even and of, of sympathy and alas for, for women who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing infants, recognizing it will be particularly difficult for some people at this time. A word of compassion that comes out of that. But I want you to notice here in these words, notice where the people are fleeing, they are fleeing away from the temple. Notice here what Jesus is teaching us, that the temple is no longer the place of refuge. The temple is not the place where you will find safety and security. No, flee away from the temple. It is not where you are going to find safety. It is the place where this horrible abomination that creates desolation occurs. That's not your place of safety here. What is the only refuge for God's people? Look at verse 20. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. For the sake of the elect, the only hope of surviving such persecution that was coming upon the church. As he says in verse 19, a tribulation like the world has never seen from the beginning or until now. The only thing that saves is God's protection and God's intervention. That is the only thing that saves during this time of persecution. That is the only thing that saves during any time of persecution is the fact that you are God's elect, that you are God's person, that you are protected by him no matter what comes upon the earth. It is our only hope of survival the temple is, no, is not the basis of their security. It is, not, it is no longer the symbol of God's abiding favor and protection. God is, allow, is willing to allow his temple to be destroyed. His glory may depart from the temple, but his favor will never depart from his people. It was never intended to be the source of or the substance of their identity. Temples and churches can become idols when they take the place of God's preeminent place in our hearts. Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. But notice, too, a simple and important phrase that Jesus uses in verse 23. He says, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He says, I'm telling you these things before they happen, not only so you won't be surprised by them, but so that you will know that God is sovereign over all things, that God knows the end from the beginning that God is aware, none of this takes him by surprise. He, he knows absolutely everything. It is not beyond his awareness, it is not beyond his control. And Jesus says, I want you to be aware of these things, suffering and persecution are to be expected. They are, as one of my Chinese pastor friends used to remind me often, a part of the normal experience of the Christian life. In fact, I remember one conversation he said to me, do they not have persecution in America? And I said, no. And he said, pardon my bluntness, but I would have to question whether you're really a Christian if you're not being persecuted. That gets your attention. And the more I travel around the world, the more I wonder whether he's right. But embedded within this passage are important reminders for us as well of the schemes of the enemy, which we should be aware of. Yes, be aware, this is what God is doing, but he is also making us aware of the schemes of the enemy, how is he at work in these, in these times and in these situations? As I have observed over the years, both in experience and in Scripture, 
I observe four primary schemes that the enemy uses in this world and especially toward God's church. And we see these in this passage. We see, first of all, that the enemy is a deceiver. Look at verse 6. He is a deceiver. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 22, there will be false Christs and false prophets. They will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Satan is a master deceiver. And he will attempt to lead even God's people astray. As my wife often says, the enemy is a liar and a thief. He lies to you and he will steal your joy. He is a deceiver. The second thing that we see is that he will try to intimidate God's people. Persecution, tribulation, verse 19, tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Being handed over to councils, we see from last week's passage, these things would cause people to fear man and to question God. If God is so good, why would he allow such bad things to happen to you? And Satan will use such tactics to intimidate us, to to cause us to question our own faith. I know what that's like. I have been questioned by police. I have faced that. I've been called into police offices and I have, been, I have been asked to give an account for my own life and my own faith. I know what that's like to be intimidated. I've lived there. And there are millions, dare I say billions of people today who are experiencing the same thing. Satan will try and intimidate us to cause us to question our own faith and to say as you're walking home from the police station, God, where are you in this? Why do we have to live this way? Third, verse 12 he will divide the flock. He will put brother against brother, parents against their own children, children having their own parents delivered to death. He will turn us against one another. Satan loves to scatter the sheep because the most vulnerable sheep is the one that gets separated from the flock. We are never more vulnerable than when we are alone. The enemy loves it when we choose sides and we find fault with one another. That is one of his his choicest weapons. He loves to 
to plant seeds of suspicion among his people. And it is why all through the New Testament, we are so strongly exhorted to be unified as a body under Christ, to resist gossip and slander, to build up and to encourage one another. Because Satan will do everything that he can to divide and to separate us from one another. And it is why Jesus prays so earnestly and so passionately just before he is arrested for the unity of the body, the unity of his people. Because that is one of the schemes of the enemies, brothers and sisters, to divide the flock And we need to see that very clearly as his work. To turn brother against brother and parent. What kind of a parent kills their own child? What kind of a church speaks slander against each other? These things ought not to be. And fourth, the enemy loves it when we don't care. When we are apathetic. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. It doesn't come out as strongly in this passage, but Jesus is preaching on the end times in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. He says, And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. A cold and apathetic heart toward those people who are facing such persecution. Brothers and sisters, we can turn so inward, we can become so self-focused and so self-absorbed that we no longer care about those people who are facing such persecution. Sometimes we need a dose of a much bigger reality to get us out of our narrow little worlds and the petty things that bother us. Our son Thomas is one of those who just keeps things real. In his first year of college, (laughs) you know where I'm going with this, he was talking with a group of first-year Bible college students, and they were debating some theological thing. And they said, well, Thomas, what do you think about this? And Thomas had just moved from the context I was just telling you about. He grew up. His normal life is persecution. He doesn't know that there's not an option. And they said, well, Thomas, what do you think about this? And he said, are you aware that in some parts of the world, people kill each other and eat one another? That's a problem. This is not a problem. (laughs) That's a problem. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we get so concerned about things that aren't problems. Are you aware that In parts of the world, people are dying. 
and they've never heard the name of Jesus? Get with it. That's a problem. Don't let petty things distract you from the thing that God says we need to be about. The love of many will grow cold. As these things all happen, we become so much more concerned about how do I protect my rights? How do I protect my world? How do I protect my whatever? We need a bigger dose of reality. Jesus says there's, there's one other thing here that we need to focus on. One other certainty, Jesus reminds us of the certainty of his return. He reminds us of the certainty that he is coming back. What gives us hope in the midst of, of such a sobering reminder as we have looked at here, only this, that, that Jesus one day will return for his own, for the sake of the elect, as he says here. We not only live in the reality that this world that we live in faces tribulation, but we also live in the reality that Jesus has overcome the world and he will return. He will come back. One truth that emerges from all prophetic passages like this is that there is no sense of timing, there is no sense of sequence. First this, then this, then this. That is true in, in, in Daniel and in Revelation and these other, these other prophetic passages. We so desperately want to figure out the actual sequence of events so that we can work out the timing. When is this going to happen? And I was thinking just, just yesterday afternoon and this morning as Sue and I were driving here, I said, it's, in, it's an interesting thing as we look at these prophetic passages. It's as though that time is flat. There is no sense of time. We want to figure that out. And it's almost as though we step out of linear time and into God's reality that all these things happen more in an eternal sense because there is no sequence first, this, then this, then this, then this. And if you take that into the book of Revelation, you'll really be frustrated. Even Jesus says, I don't know the timing. Well, if Jesus doesn't know, give it up. Forget it. But what is the point that Jesus is making that all of Scripture emphasizes is the awareness of his coming ought to result in a transformed life. That I live in the reality that this could happen right now in this moment, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, before the end of this message. That is the reality that Jesus wants us to live in. Yes, tribulation and persecution is going to happen, but I want you to live in a greater reality, and that is this ought to keep you looking up and not down. This ought to keep you looking in your own heart because every passage in Scripture that talks about the coming of Jesus also calls his people to a life of holiness and a life of purity. 
It is a longing that purifies the church. You want to see that? Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And now, little children, at the end of verse of chapter 2, now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence, not fear, but confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jonathan Edwards used to say, God, let me live every moment in the reality that you are coming again so that when you come, that I won't be caught in shame, but in confidence. I don't want to do anything in my life at any moment that would contradict who I am in Jesus when he appears. How do you want Jesus to find you when he comes? If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It is truly one of the most purifying thoughts that we can have is the looking for and longing for the coming of Jesus. Do you live with that longing? It will cleanse your heart like nothing else. Do you remind each other of these words? Sue and I say these words to each other all the time. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today is the day when Jesus will return. Let's live in the light of that truth. And that will set the course of your day. It will purify your heart. It will clean up your mouth. It will clean up your thoughts. It will set your, your, the, the course of your day in a whole new direction. Virtually every passage that talks about the coming of Jesus is, is accompanied with the call to personal holiness. Longing for the coming of the Lord is a purifying longing And we are called as the people of Jesus to be looking for and longing for his coming every day, every moment. Every once in a while, I am asked what my favorite verse is. Interesting, when you're a pastor or a Bible college lecturer, people ask you questions like that. What's your favorite verse? Revelation 22.4. And it's because of one verse. And we shall see his face. There's nothing in my life I long for more than that. 
to see the face of Jesus. I long for it every, every minute of my life, every moment of every day. I long to see the face of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I beg you to long for that with me. Look for it. Live for that more than any other thing. It will purify you as a person. It will purify us as a church. It will purify the body of Christ. It will give you something to live for that is so much bigger than what you're living for now. And we shall see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That is the truth that we have to hope in. This puts all of life in eternal perspective. It puts suffering, it puts persecution, it puts everything in its right place. When we long to see the face of Jesus, and we focus on that even more than the suffering and the persecution that we face, we long for that. Let's pray. I don't know where a message like this hits any of you, but I certainly know what the Spirit is saying to my soul right now. And I ask you, take counsel in your own heart and with the Spirit of God and allow him to purify you with this truth. Even so, I am coming. And live in that reality and allow it to purify you. Allow it to set the course of your life more than any other thing. Father, forgive us. when we turn so inward and we seek to protect ourselves and live for our own little things. Bind our hearts with those around the world who are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Give us hearts of compassion. Do not allow our love to grow cold.
help us to be aware of the schemes of the enemy. To stand firm in you. Help us. By the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, help us. We pray for Jesus' sake.